What we realized is we could build a technology that looks over the shoulder of the managers and sees what they're doing, in particular sees their returns in close to real time, understands what type of exposures they may have. If you can put those two things together, the returns that you're seeing and the plausible exposures, you can, using modern machine learning techniques, solve for what portfolio best describes the returns that they are generating in the most recent period. And that insight is what we use. We translate that into long and short positions in securities, which is what backs our ETF. Today, I'm speaking to Bob Elliott, founder and CEO of Unlimited Funds, former general manager and head of venture capital at CircleUp, and former member of Bridgewater's investment committee, heading up Ray Dalio's research team. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, no worries at all. So how are things? Uh, good, good. It's uh, an unseasonably warm day here in New York, uh, 60 degrees. I had to leave the coat at home. Unusual for February, but... Uh, I'll take the moment of spring here amidst the cold. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Yeah, we're based um, in London, uh, the city of London by Liverpool Street, and it's freezing. So <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Someone's got nice weather anyway. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to dive straight into uh, a topic that will become central to, I think, the interview, and then we'll circle back and cover some of your career history. But first of all, uh, why launch the unlimited HF? ND multi-strategy return tracker ETF in October last year. Was there a eureka moment, perhaps? Well, I had spent 20 years of my uh, career uh, as a systematic investor in basically both sides of the world of two and 20, both in the hedge fund space as well as in the venture capital space. And uh, I increasingly recognized over time how those businesses are really set up to be great for the manager and not that great for the investor. And the reason why that is, is because the funds themselves are pretty good at generating high quality return, but they're also pretty good at charging very high fees, which means that investors are not that much better off than they would be on their own. And so that got me to thinking about whether there was a way to bring low cost diversified index solutions, which have totally changed the world of stock and bond investing and bring those to the world of 2 and 20. Now, not investing directly in the funds or two and twenty products themselves, because they charge two and twenty, and can't get to the good ones. But instead, using technology to replicate the strategies that those managers are doing and the positions that they have on at any point in time, and so that's really what Unlimited is all about. And our first product, the HFND ETF, is intended to replicate the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry, which is a pretty darn good return stream. Uh, for most investors, but do it at that 95 basis point management fee instead of something that looks more like two and 20. Yeah, got it. And I was particularly interested to dig into this subject. Uh, We've got a lot of retail and individual investors listening in, so I know they'll be keen to hear more about the product. We'll come back to that in a second, but let's circle back and cover some of your career history. So you were at Bridgewater Associates for over 13 years, I believe, heading up Ray Dalio's investment team, as I've already mentioned. Uh, you were selected as part of a small group to oversee the company's pure alpha portfolio. So firstly, I read you're essentially Dalio's right-hand man for over a decade. So firstly, tell me what that was like. Everyone knows Ray Dalio. Give us an insight into what that was like. Well, I think it was a great place to you know, start a career. Bridgewater was really at the cutting edge of developing 
a systematic understanding of the global macro economy and then using that understanding to trade markets. And I was part of the small handful of investors that was deeply involved in that process and creating the strategies, uh, you know, across asset classes, uh, many of which were used in the flagship Pure Alpha Fund. And so I think it really was, a, it was a great uh, environment to start a career uh, building that systematic understanding. And then also it was a great time living through some of the most challenging market environments that you know many investors have faced over the course of the last 20 plus years. It was right in the center of decisions and understanding the global financial crisis. I was Bridgewater's lead in determining the size uh, and scope of it. And you know, as part of that, got a chance to you know directly counsel Fed and Treasury and and other uh, officials uh, around the world around how to both assess the size of it as well as uh, as well as how to handle it. It was quite an experience when you know the numbers that I was putting together were the first ones talking about trillions of dollars of losses. And while that was an unfortunate outcome, it was a great learning experience. You know, and being able to predict and get ahead of those things was really critical to the success of the, of the firm at the time. So, you know, that was really a great, uh, a great place to get started. Um, but, you know, as I recognize over time, you know, those businesses, particularly the hedge fund business and, and not just Bridgewater, all had you know, the vast majority of hedge fund businesses, mm. they're really set up to advantage the manager and not really set up to advantage the investor. And so, you know, after 13 plus years at Bridgewater, I, I was inspired to figure out a way to bring those hedge fund strategies to everyone instead of just to, you know, the largest, most institutional investors in the world. Yeah, and I want to get on to exactly how you've done that. But before we do, um, we've had other Bridgewater alumni on the podcast and I've asked them about the culture. It's pretty world renowned, that culture at Bridgewater. So again, I'll ask the same question to you. What was the culture like? How would you characterize it? I think many high-performing organizations exhibit similar cultures, and you could think about that in finance, but you could also think about that in all sorts of other areas. Mm. At its core, that culture is one where when you strive for excellence, you put your ego aside and you focus on what you need to know and understand and get better at in order to be great. You know, that really is the core element of the culture. There's a lot of extra stuff going on, but really at its core, it's that attributes of pretty much any high-performing organization uh, that if you go and study them, that those are the sorts of, um, frankly, priorities or values that any high-performing organization uh, puts together in order to succeed. Yeah, got it. Um, well, when you were talking about your time at Bridgewater early, you mentioned difficult periods for investors, one of which I imagine was 2008, although Bridgewater didn't make it look too difficult. Uh, I was interested to read that you partnered with Dalio on the original work for principles for navigating big debt crises, uh, a particularly pertinent topic in 2023. The book shares a unique framework for how to deal with these debt crises, a template followed by Bridgewater, as I say, during that period. Uh, whilst a lot of other hedge funds and investors in general floundered, talk to us about that template, how it came to be, and any principles that can be applied in today's market environment. Most people up until that point had lived through a number of business cycles in their career, you know, typical 
expansions, which were meant by Fed tightening, which then create reversals in the economy, which lead to, you know, eventual you know, stimulation and reflation. And at that time, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to believe but when you were standing in 2007 or 2008, I think there were real questions about, are we seeing a recession or are we seeing something different than a recession? And I think part of the key focus uh, that we had at the time was building out that understanding and frankly, helping educate others on being able to differentiate a traditional business cycle, which can be reversed, where the economy can be reversed using monetary stimulation, typical you know, interest rate cuts, et cetera, from something that was actually going on, which was a deleveraging environment, which is where people had, and in particular, U.S. households, had borrowed too much money relative to their incomes, which created a need to cut their borrowing, which created a cut in spending, which then created the bigger second and third order problems, which is the creative forced liquidation of assets mm. and that downward forced disinflation or deflationary spiral of very quickly and abruptly paying down debt. And the dynamic of how to solve that sort of cycle, you're going to cut interest rates to zero. That kind of looks like a traditional business cycle, but typically cuts to zero aren't good enough to actually reverse that process. You have to do more in terms of monetary stimulation. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, back in the 30s, devaluing the dollar relative to gold, or whether it was more recently printing money and buying assets in order to reflate the economy, we we knew that that was the path you know, that, that we had to go down. Mm. I think another important dynamic was much of the market didn't fully appreciate the stress that that sort of deleveraging dynamic puts on the financial institutions and in particular the banks. And so we were very forward looking in saying you had to be out there recapitalizing the banks. Um, and in fact, I can, I can remember directly counseling the government on crafting the TARP legislation to allow for bank equity to be included as part of that rather than just traditional asset purchases. And that was really critical because the beautiful thing about recapitalizing banks is banks are levered entities. And so you get a lot more bang for your buck in terms of offsetting the leveraging pressure if you can capitalize banking institutions. And so all of that was were things that had existed in the 1930s, but people hadn't really appreciated, thought we were in a traditional recession and kind of missed that dynamic. And so it was really critical to understand we were in a deleveraging not a recession. And the tools to meet that deleveraging were very different. And frankly, the tools that ultimately were used by the Fed uh, and the Treasury and, and, and Congress to help create the reversal in the economy, which, you know, all things considered, was pretty fast. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the economy kind of went down in September meaningfully. And by March, we had bottomed and started the reflationary process. And so, you know, that was a, that was a pretty, pretty good response, all things considered relative to, certainly relative to how deleveraging in the past had handled. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating and a really interesting point on the banks. Not something I'd, I'd heard before or considered. So thank you for sharing that. So, I mean, if we, if we take your career closer to present day, I think after just over a year at Royvent Sciences, you, you joined Circle Up. And as I mentioned in the intro, you were general manager and head of venture capital there. Um, before we move on to your current role, firstly, why the move into venture capital and private markets? You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity 
in the private markets to bring some of the key strategies and approaches that frankly have become relatively ubiquitous in the public markets. And so that idea of using systematic and proven decision-making strategies to help improve the odds of success. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that every major public markets trading firm in the world that is successful is doing some form of that. Yeah. Right? Some are more systematic, some are less systematic. But everyone is in that moving in that direction. And the thing that's fascinating about the venture capital business and to some and to some extent the private equity business is that many of the decisions that are being made are being made based upon uh, either personal preferences or uh, in a totally discretionary way, in a discretionary way. Now, it doesn't mean that it's informed by data, mm. but ultimately those are discretionary decisions. And so I was drawn to circle up and, and what their basic, you know, the basic idea was use big data to figure out who's going to win. And I think the thing, as I got there and started to work on the technology, the decision-making rules, is that it's pretty incredible how even relatively common sense decision rules applied to the big data that's available in the consumer area can help you start to make decisions. If you're disciplined about it, you know, you can become a top decile investor in that industry simply by using the data and applying totally common sense decision rules to find the companies that are likely to be most successful. And that's pretty incredible, right? That you can you can basically outperform human intuition, radically outperform human intuition, simply by using common sense decision rules to identify what is likely to succeed. So that was, you know, that was really, that was really uh uh it, it enjoyed the part of sort of bringing the ideas of systemization and public markets investing into that private side of the of the world, and you know, it was, a, it was a it was a great time there. Though I think, you know, increasingly I recognize that, you know, even with that approach and, and improving the returns for the outcomes of the investors, it's still all of these businesses are set up to advantage the investors with you know six hundred basis points of annualized fees on the average venture capital fund or private equity fund, and so that got me to thinking: Is there a way to actually do something that is more accessible to the broader set of investors and on a much more cost-effective way uh, so that they can, you know, they can benefit from those types of return streams. Yeah, fascinating. Well, let's move on to exactly how you're attempting to solve that problem, I guess. I think in your about statement on the Unlimited Funds website, you reference the use of technology in building your ETF portfolio. So we'll dig into your investment approach shortly. But Perhaps you can briefly describe the general integration of tech within your process. I imagine we're going to be talking about the systemization that you employed at CircleUp or something similar. Yeah, I mean, we, we developed, you know, our, our, the basic idea was if we're going to create a diversified, low-cost index fund for 2 and 20, we can't invest directly in the products. Like, how does it work for stock and bond investing? Like, low-cost diversified indexing has totally changed stock and bond investing. Mm. And the way that it's changed it is by, you know, it's relatively simple, which is the S&P 500 publishes the list of constituents. Vanguard in particular goes out and buys those and competes on price, right? And that has been radically beneficial for investors. But when you turn your attention to the 220 space, it's a little different because you can't go buy the investments. Mm. And a big part of the reason why that is, is because the good ones won't take your money 
That's a big problem for many investors. Um, and even if they did, they'd charge you two and twenty, and then you know, aggregator of these things would have to charge something. You know, often these platforms will charge, you know, a hundred basis points. A financial advisor will charge a hundred basis points, and so you're starting to get fees on top of fees on top of fees. And so that's where the idea was: could we build technology basically based upon our experience having built proprietary strategies in all of these different fund styles. My partner, Bruce McDevitt, and I, between the two of us, we have 50 years of experience in the hedge fund space. So we've seen all of it in terms of the different strategies that exist. And so what we could do, what we realized is we could build a technology that looks over the shoulder of the managers and sees what they're doing, in particular, sees their returns in close to real time understands what type of exposures they may have. If you can put those two things together, the returns that you're seeing and the plausible exposures, you can, using modern machine learning techniques, solve for what portfolio best describes the returns that they are generating in the most recent period. And that insight is what we use. We translate that into long and short positions in securities, which is what backs our ETF. So that really is the insight is how do you, using technology, you know, modern techniques paired with decades of skill and experience to develop this proprietary technology that allows us to infer what positions these managers have on them. Yeah, great. And I think you describe it on your website in terms of capturing that exposure within an ETF, you're bringing the indexing revolution to alternative investments, which I think is quite a nice way of summing it up. But is there any other funds like this? Are there any competitors that you see in the market right now? Well, so the idea of, of trying to replicate hedge fund returns, it has had an allure for many years, for decades, in fact. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges, if you look at other attempts to do this, is either they were done so long ago that a lot of the frankly, the tools and techniques and, and, and computing horsepower necessary to solve this most effectively didn't exist. And so they were sort of traditional rolling regressions, which you know, don't really capture the agility of hedge funds. And that's really what you have to do. You have to understand their agility and their positions in order to infer what they're doing and, and, and replicate the alpha, not just the, you know, the, the modest beta in those portfolios. And then also more structurally, the industry is set up where if you have the skills and expertise to have run hedge fund money and to go build this sort of strategy, almost always what you choose to do is run a 2 and 20 business because it's a lot more lucrative, individually, immediately lucrative than you know, building a business which is you know, at a much, you know, much lower revenue point than what a typical 220 business is. And so what you see is that, you know, the vast majority of people with the skills available, the experience to be able to go do this, they wouldn't want to actually go build this product because frankly, it would just totally undermine their business. Why would they build a product that is, you know, charging 95 basis points instead of, if they can charge 220, why would they build a product that charges 95 basis points? So we're a bit of odd ducks in that sense that, We've had long careers in hedge funds. We're not interested in, you know, hanging our own shingle and running our own, you know, moderately sized fund. We think it's much more exciting uh, and a much more, you know, challenging and invigorating problem to go try and figure out a way 
to bring these sorts of strategies to all investors rather than, you know, raising a small fund that, you know, makes rich people richer. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Okay, so to make this a little less sort of abstract then, what exactly does the exposure of the fund look like in real terms now? And talk to us about how that reflects the hedge fund industry's exposure. Yeah, so what we do is we we build a set of proprietary replication portfolios for each of the major hedge fund stocks, so global macro, fixed income ARB, equity long short, et cetera. And then in HFND, we put all those different portfolios together. And part of the benefit of of HFND in a diversified hedge fund portfolio is you get to net out the views across the different fund styles and you get a you get a, a diversification of fund strategies and managers. And so, you know, we always say that the only free lunch in investing is diversification. And I think it's particularly important in putting together alpha strategies because any one particular alpha strategy is moderately good, you know, they are positive expected value, but they can underperform for meaningful periods of time. And certainly any manager is even less reliable than the strategies themselves. And so what we do with HFND is we put together all of these different strategy styles. Each one we expect to deliver a pretty good return and a pretty good you know, risk return over time. But you put them all together and you get a much more consistent return stream than if you just invested in one particular asset. So what we do is we take each one of those underlying strategies, we put them all together and cross-net them. We have a universe of uh, roughly 60 different exposures that we think that hedge funds in aggregate might have on at any point in time. Those exposures are basically all the largest, most liquid markets in the world, stock sectors, factors, country indices, credit commodities, currencies, fixed income, you know, all the stuff that would be, if you were to write down your list of your top, you know, 60 different markets in the world, that's what our opportunity set is. And then at any one point in time, we'll have on between 30 and, you know, roughly 30 positions because we won't trade de minimis positions. And those are the 30 positions that serve as the backing of our ETF at any point in time. Okay, got it. And I was reading the the summary prospectus available on your website, which we'll link in the episode description, but yeah, it's, it seems to me that that pool of instruments that the fund selects from that are used also, I guess, as the inputs for the algorithm or the machine learning algorithm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because, because what you want to do is you want to say, well, here's the, you know, for a global macro manager, like what sort of plausible exposures do those managers have on an aggregate? You know, it's basically currencies, commodities, fixed income, equity, you know, equity indices, it, credit, things like that. So, and each one of those different pieces, you can, that's a concept, right? And that concept, the beautiful thing about uh, the innovation in the ETF world, right, is that there's basically an ETF for everything, a low cost index ETF for everything. And so given that, that that exists, what we can do is we can take those concepts and we can trade those low cost liquid ETFs. And they're actually more liquid and cheaper to trade than going and trying to secure the underlines in many yeah. cases. And so we can trade those instruments. Like Vanguard and you know iShares have done all the work for us. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. How great is that? Yeah. Right? And that we just use those securities where they've done all the work for us under the hood 
in terms of combining, creating the securities, creating the liquidity of the securities, and then we can just trade those long and short. That's what the, the fund is right now, is, is a solely long and short positions in low-cost ETFs, low-cost very liquid ETFs, although over time we may add futures or swaps to the extent that it, uh, it's the right thing to do for the investor because they're slightly lower cost uh, than, than the ETFs themselves. Yeah, and am I right in thinking that the ETF also holds futures contracts? Or can also hold. It does not currently hold futures contracts, but we may over time, uh, and we're actively working on adding futures contracts because there's certain securities or certain types of exposures where the futures market offers a lower cost opportunity, lower, lower cost and, and more liquid opportunity for uh, you know things like uh, commodities, like uh, you know industrial metals, uh, things like that, or uh, or exchange rates. The, Typically, the futures market is a bit more liquid uh, and lower cost than what the ETF alternatives are, although the ETF alternatives are pretty good. Yeah. We run the whole fund at a weighted average cost basis of eight basis points. That's our acquired fund fee on average, determined, you know, the determined acquired fund fee, which is actually meaningfully less than if we went out and actually bought all the individual positions themselves, but, but we... We have to report that for regulatory purposes. That's in our expense ratio, that eight basis points. Yeah, sure. And uh, we already touched on it, but um, you mentioned, I think, that the fund has 30 constituents currently. What went into deciding that number, and is that the maximum that you're allowed to hold? Uh, no, we can hold uh, We can hold essentially as many constituents as we want, any of the 60 inputs. What we, what we do is we, um, we don't hold de minimis positions. And so at any point in time, there may be, you know, there's more impactful drivers of the positioning and less impactful drivers. And so yeah. we don't hold de minimis positions because the the uh, incremental benefit of the replication from those de, de minimis positions is, is typically uh, not worth the incremental cost of implementing and managing those positions. And so to be clear, that's all oriented around what delivers the best return for the investor. That's what we're focused on. Yeah. And so that's why we... Uh, we engage it uh, in something called a filter, that sort of a trade filtering, uh, a trade filtering process, and so that, for the record, is like a very that's like an institutional asset manager norm. Basically, all institutional asset managers will, um, you know, do things like this. And so, um, in some ways, you know, what we're doing is we're based upon our decades of experience, sort of bringing those those very commonplace risk control strategies, as well as, uh, you know, uh, trade execution, portfolio execution strategies into the ETF wrapper. Yeah, yeah, got it. Okay, great. Well, how actively then are you rebalancing the portfolio to ensure that it consistently reflects and, and tracks those private markets? For sure, yeah. We get updated information on the returns of hedge funds on a regular basis. And so when we get that incremental information, it comes in, we process it using our, uh, you know, our systematic process, our machine learning process, and it updates the views. And then we uh, will trade those, you know, based upon what the incremental updated views are. I think it's important to recognize, I think some people have this idea that hedge funds are super fast moving, they get into positions, they get out of positions. And that is true for a very, very small handful of funds that are mostly acting as liquidity providers rather than asset managers. And so the vast majority of hedge funds, you know, of the $5 trillion in hedge funds, 
vast, vast majority, are investing in a diversified set of exposures or positions, and their thinking around those positions does not evolve, you know, on a day-to-day basis. It evolves certainly if you abstract to the type of strategies, right? So you get, you know, the 500 biggest macro managers or the 500 biggest equity long short managers, their thinking about the world does not change significantly on a day-to-day basis. It evolves over time, over the course of, say, typically like 12 to 18 months, right? So if you think about it, like most of the equity long short managers, they were long growth in tech coming out of COVID, which was a great trade, no question about it. And then entering 2022, they recognized that the cycle was getting later, that those growth and tech names have been bid up. And so they started to position towards value-oriented sectors or other countries that had better valuation. So I like to describe that because I think it gives you a, a tangible sense of how that thinking evolves over time. And that's a pretty normal evolution of thinking, that sort of 12 to 18-month evolution. Yeah, got it. Um, we mentioned diversification, I think, earlier, and you diversify across these sort of styles, I guess. But is there a criteria that once, I guess, the algorithm and your portfolio managers choose the constituents and the exposure that the fund should hold, is there a criteria that then is laid on top of that almost to ensure that you are diversified across asset classes, for example? Do you need to hold a specific percentage in bonds versus stocks? Talk to us about that sort of asset allocation to yeah, so there's a, a number in, in as part of running an ETF, there are um, there are a number of actually regulatory constraints that typically enforce diversification so that we can't have, for instance, more than 20 or 25 percent of a position in the same or economically similar securities. That's an example of a risk control that exists as a as a function of regulatory considerations. Those are good risk controls. There's also, frankly, commonplace uh, risk control requirements around VAR. So how much risk ETF like ours can be taking. So ensuring, you know, that you're constantly doing tests to ensure that there aren't undue risks of substantial loss in terms of the portfolio. Mm. And so all of those different things. And then we layer on top of that, we operate uh, mainly within the regulatory constraints and frankly, are applying many of the sort of very commonplace uh, risk control type strategies. So, you know, not overweighing particular countries or particular, you know, you don't want to just look at, are you overweight, you know, Japanese stocks, but you also want to look at Japanese stocks and the yen yeah. combined, yeah. right? To talk about, so to make sure you're not overweight a particular country, a particular region, a particular factor. Those are all the sort of normal uh, type of processes that that you do as part of running money just to make sure that your overall portfolio is within constraints. The reality is that this is a super diversified portfolio. (laughs) There's a lot of, you know, we have 30 positions on, uh, there's some longs, there's some shorts, you know, at any point in time, you know, the way that this portfolio works out, you can go look at it, you know, certainly since it launched. To take a step back, Hedge funds in general are not hotshot investors trying to generate 30, 40, 50% return. That's not what they do. Hedge funds in general are very prudent asset managers focused on delivering that, you know, low, you know, that sort of let's call it 10-ish percent return or a little lower than that with a good risk return ratio. 
that is, you know, that is exactly what an institutional investor wants. And so that is the type of strategy. That's the strategy that we're seeking to replicate. And so when we do that, that's the type of outcome that we're looking to achieve with this portfolio, which in many ways you could look at and say is kind of boring. <laughs> boring is good though, right? Bore, boring in the wealth management business and boring in the wealth creation business is a much smarter way to manage money over time than exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it doesn't make for great cocktail party conversation, but <laughs> it does make for good wealth creation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, got it. And I've, I've heard that from several different guests before. So that, that reaffirms that point. Okay. Well, given the nature of the fund, then I'm particularly interested to hear who typically invests in this ETF. Is it predominantly retail investors, for example? Uh, we launched uh, just uh, over four months ago, uh, and we have about $70 million in, in the product. The vast, vast majority of that are people that we didn't know <laughs> before mm-hmm. we kicked off this, this process. And, and that $70 million makes uh, HFND uh, the fastest growing indie active ETF launch of 2022 and one of the fastest over the last couple of years. So it really is, wow. it's obviously connecting with investors. And you know, we see a, a number of uh, financial advisors, independent RIAs who see this product. And typically they're already looking for hedge fund type exposures, but they recognize that the typical hedge fund type exposures, the problem is they're in, they're super concentrated because you know there's only one manager you basically invest in. They're illiquid, they're in LP structures, which are tax inefficient. They require, frankly, a lot of paperwork, which is a real pain. Like you have 200 clients and you have to fill out paperwork for 200 people. It's a real, a real pain. That's a real pain point for a lot of advisors. Whereas uh, they look at the ETF and they say, well, it's diversified and it's liquid and it's tax advantage relative to the LP position. And there's no paperwork and it's low cost. And that they see all of, they want the exposure, but they, they have these problems with the products that are out there. And so they see HFNT as meeting a lot of those key you know issues those key challenges that they have in finding high quality alternative investments for the clients so that's a big chunk of who's been interested but i'd also say we actually have a, a relatively sizable portion of that which is i'd call sort of true retail which are people who you know are coming across the tape and frankly buying 10 or 20 shares and you know what that is that to me is the most exciting yeah right because those are people who there's no way they would get access to sophisticated asset management strategies like this were it not for that ETF wrapper, right? And so how great is it that they can go into the market and if, you know, 200 bucks is what you've got, you know, to allocate as part of your securities portfolio for this, then that's awesome. I'm, that's the great thing about an ETF is it makes the same institutional quality investment management that you know, a person who cuts a $25 million check, it's the same outcome as the person who's cutting a $200 check. And that's awesome. Mm. That is awesome. Yeah. And we've had so much interest from, you know, from folks who just, you know, people that I meet on Twitter and, and frankly, like out in the world who say, hey, look, this, you know, this really was an exciting product for my, uh, my portfolio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I asked the question. I was interested to see whether true retail, as you say, were, were interested in the fund. So that's great to hear. An example of democratization, I suppose, that the ETF wrapper brings. So really interesting. 
Uh, well, I can't move on from the ETF without asking about performance. I think when I checked yesterday, it was up nearly 5% since inception, only launched four months ago, I think, as, as you said earlier. But without obviously stating a return target or anything like that, how do you expect performance to trend this year? Are there particular kind of macro tailwinds that are likely to bolster performance or, or impede it? Well, what we're trying to do is match the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry. We're not trying to match the S&P 500. We're not trying to match 6040. We're not trying to match anything other than that particular target. Because that return stream, the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry, if you look back through time, has been very good relative to, say, index invest. And so, uh, you know, that return stream, the gross of fees returns of hedge funds has been, has achieved returns that are better than the S&P 500 with about half of the monthly volatility and a third of the drawdowns. And so that is a great return stream. And so if we can match that, we're doing pretty well. And that's what we're trying to do. And so far over the course of the first, you know, four months or so, you know, we've been very happy with how the technology has been able to do that in an environment of pretty volatile asset markets, right? You know, stocks have gone up and down and so have bonds. And, you know, we're focused on our mandate and, and matching that mandate. I think on a longer term perspective, you know, some people ask, why hedge funds now, right? Why would you want to add a hedge fund allocation to your portfolio now? And I think we're going through a pretty significant macro transition. Mm-hmm. We were in an era for 15 years of you know the greatest monetary stimulation in modern finance, like over the last hundreds of years, right? And so what happened during that period? Well, everything went up. And the more risky the thing that you bought, the smarter you looked, right? And that is over. The era of cheap money, zero interest rates, that is over and it's not coming back. And so then the question becomes, who do you want to manage your money in an environment where there's a lot more macro volatility, a lot more uncertainty, right? You can't just buy assets and hope that they go up the way you were able to do over the last 15 years. It's really a time where alpha generation and the best alpha managers are really going to shine relative to passive index investing. And so that's what I think we're going to see over the course of the next you know, five or 10 years. Is we're going to see a totally different environment where alpha managers are going to really outperform. And the big issue, and I think that that is in particular this year, because we're at this very difficult late cycle moment. You know, are we in a soft landing? Are we in a no landing? Are we in a higher for longer? Or, you know, the answer to all those questions, like hedge fund managers have navigated the last you know year plus much better than index investors, right? Much much better. And so to have them on your side ahead of what will certainly be a significant amount of macroeconomic volatility and asset market volatility, that's what you that's what you want to have. The big issue is the fees. That's the big issue, right? It's how do you get exposure to those managers, to that sophisticated asset management, but not pay two and 20? Because if you pay the two and 20, right, it erases all the value that those managers provide. I like to say often hedge fund managers don't have a strategy problem. They have a fee problem. And so if you can address the fee problem and get access to that alpha at a much lower cost, you have a great opportunity. To, uh, to essentially hire those managers to help you navigate these uncertain times. Yeah, got it. Because I wanted to ask 
that question, you know, why now? Why launch this fund now? But I think you've pretty much answered that. I just want to kind of focus in on the the performance of hedge funds last year. I, th- I think, you know, uh, based on the HFRI 500 fund weighted composite index, I think performance fell 4.25% the worst year since 2018. So whether that's a fair reflection of the hedge fund industry as a whole, you can tell me. But, you know, was last year a good year, a good reflection of hedge fund performance? And, you know, how did that inform your thinking about launching a hedge fund-based strategy in 2022? Well, yeah. So if you take that 4.2% and then you add back the fees, let's call it, you know, close to neutral in aggregate at the hedge fund industry level, in aggregate because the good performers charge management fees the good performers charge the performance fees and those that were that were below zero still charge the management fees. And so on the order of a zero return last year, you know, who wouldn't have wanted a zero return? <laughs> yeah. Right. 60, 40 investing, stock investing, bond investing down, you know, 15, 20% depends on exactly what your mix is and exactly how you want to do it. And I think that that's a really important thing to highlight because the way that you build wealth over time is by not going through massive swings in volatility. Yeah. Right. The way you build wealth through time is by generating pretty good returns most of the time and navigating and limiting downside risk in challenging times. And that's really, if you look at the history of hedge funds and how they have done well over time. How did they deliver that more consistent return stream that is equivalent to or better than stocks? Well, the way that they did it was by generating pretty good returns most of the time and having a a return stream that had less significant losses during challenging periods. And so, you know, as I say, would you have taken, you know, zero or a bit better than zero last year? I think most Yeah people would have done that. That would have been like a 95th percentile outcome for most fully invested investors, right? You know, a zero return outcome. The important thing is that was zero, but then what happens is if, you know, the question is, do you get exposure to the to the upside environments? And so as an example, if you look at, you know, how hedge funds returned in January, it wasn't as good as stocks, but it was still up, I, I think our blended number is, let's call it three, give or take, right? Okay, well, so that's, you know, that's pretty good. (laughs) Like standing in 2021, you know, at the end of 2021, relative to where you stand today, you know, that's a pretty good outcome for most investors. You know, that's the sort of thing you should expect from a diversified alpha strategy over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the perfect point to end on, actually, the perfect insight. Glad we're able to underline that. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Bob. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.